Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 21st, 2021, and uh, we're we're into over 500 conversations with, as I just said, uh, some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. And if there's one subject that has dominated those conversations, particularly over the last year in the year of COVID, it's the issue of freedom, what it is. When you look it up on Wikipedia, there are lots of words around freedom. You get a bit lost. I guess, in my view, at least, there are two schools of freedom. The first is the Hobbesian school. We had the Cambridge University professor of politics, David Runciman, on the show, telling us how Thomas Hobbes would make sense of the world today. His uh, 1631 classic, uh, Leviathan, suggested that freedom meant essentially giving up our natural state uh, because we were naturally fearful types and we sought society. Uh, the other school, which I think we're going to talk more about today, is uh, the, the Swiss-French uh, philosopher, social theorist, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He famously wrote in his social contract that man is born free, but everywhere in, is in chains. He saw society then um, as being against freedom. And his life was a, a form of literary and physical escape. Um, one of his books was The Reveries of the Solitary Walker, which uh, is a book about escaping society, being free through walking. I thought of Rousseau and particularly his uh, reveries uh, in terms of my guest today. He's a contemporary American writer. You will all know him, Sebastian uh, Junger. He has a new book out appropriately called Freedom. And I see him very much in the Rousseauan school of, of, of seeing a uh, man born everywhere in, in um, free, but now in society being everywhere in chains. Perhaps, though, he would be uncomfortable being pigeonholed in that way. Anyway, I'm thrilled that Sebastian is joining us from his uh, home in New York City. Uh, Sebastian... People are always comparing you to Hemingway. What about the Rousseau thing? Does it resonate <laughs> at all? I wish I had Rousseau's hair. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm happy to be paired with a, a thinker, a great thinker like Rousseau. Uh, but I, you know, I, I guess I would put a finer point out on it. I mean, I studied anthropology in college. Uh, I was a journalist, a war reporter. I traveled all over the world, and I looked at things through an anthropological lens and. You know, what I would say is that humans are social primates, right? We don't survive alone in nature. We die almost immediately. We survive. And in fact, we thrive because we live in groups. And um, when you get your emotional and your physical security from being part of a group, as virtually every human does, you have to abide by those group norms. Uh, and once you're doing that, you're not free uh, in, in, in the most sort of stringent definition of the word. Your actions are constrained by what the group expects of you and expects you to do and not do. And uh, so, yes, Rousseau is right, but but he's, but he's there was never an era in human evolution, in human history, where, where 
um, the, the individual was completely free. It's, it's an absurd thing to hope for. In a funny kind of way, though, this book, um, Freedom, is a kind of Rousseauan conceit because you end the book suggesting, and I, and I don't want to begin at the end, but I can't resist. Yeah. You end the book saying you have this remarkable walk across uh, the eastern side of America, down the railroads. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. And then you say at the end, it's time to go back to real life. So is this book, um, Sebastian, Freedom, is it your escape? Um, and, and in that sense, what exactly is freedom? Well, yes. I mean, you can experience relative levels of autonomy from society. And we all know what that feels like. Going on vacation, leaving your job for a couple of weeks, going on vacation is a form of that. Going backpacking into the wilderness is a form of that. What I did with a couple of friends, we'd all been in a lot of combat, either as soldiers or as journalists. And we went, we walked along the railroad lines from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia, up the East Coast, and then west to Pittsburgh. Uh, the railroad lines in this country are sort of narrow swaths of no man's land that are pretty much unmonitored by the police or by society. And uh, and you can kind of do what you want. We were, we were, you know, it's a dangerous place, but we were, you know, we were sleeping under bridges and in abandoned buildings and cooking over fires and and getting our water out of creeks. And every few days we'd walk through a town and get some more supplies and go back out onto the railroad lines. And most, as I say in the book, no, most nights, we were the only people in the world who knew where we were. And that's a form of freedom. Uh, but if you broaden the lens out a little bit, you know, we were, we were eating food produced by the society we live in. We were carrying gear manufactured by the society we lived in. We, you know, we were, uh, you broaden the frame a bit and we're just as dependent on society as everybody else, which has been true for humans as long as there have been humans. There is no era where the individual could really make their way in the wilderness solo and in a completely free and autonomous state. And you write about this beautifully. Um, there's a, I don't know whether it's a science fictional quality, a dystopian or utopian quality to the book, but sort of a mix of all of them. Uh, you inscribe the book. I'm always intrigued by inscriptions. Uh, beginnings of books always, I think, tell you a lot about it. Uh, you, you, you dedicate the book to my beloved family who taught me the true meaning of freedom. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, philosophers have pointed out, uh, and probably therapists as well, that you know, arguably the, the, the ultimate form of freedom is within and you can have financial freedom, meaning well, that's Rousseau in a, in a nutshell, Sebastian, isn't it? I guess it is. I mean, I, I wish I'd read more of his work, um, but, um, you know, you can have financial freedom. You can amass a lot of money and be insulated from the assaults of life by your money. You can have temporal freedom where, you know, you don't have a job, right? Maybe you're homeless, but your day is your own. Uh, and in that in that paradigm, poverty is actually not an oppression. It's a kind of liberation because you're 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 not spending your hours and days working for someone else. But ultimately, as I found found when I interviewed someone who had spent most of their life in prison and had just been released after 25 years, had just been released for good behavior. And I asked this man, is it possible to be more free in prison than outside of prison? And he looked at me like I was com a complete fool. He said, yeah, of course it is. You can't be an addict in prison. Uh, you can't be, even be distracted by your iPhone. Uh, in prison, you have all the time in the world and eventually you're going to have an honest conversation with yourself about who you really are and what you're doing in there 
And when you have that conversation, you're a free man. And he said most, a lot of people on the outside never even get to that point with themselves and they're not free. And so what I meant by that inscription is that finally, after a, a life of adventure and misadventure and many forms of freedom, um, I found that the family that, that I'm part of, I have two wonderful little girls, uh, a wonderful wife, that there isn't a kind of an emotional, an unbounded emotional freedom that comes with that kind of love uh, that, uh, you know, I would say uh, outstrips every other form that I've experienced. Um, and particularly if you're ready for it. And in my 50s, I was ready for it. Probably in my 20s, I wouldn't have been. Uh, I joked at the beginning that freedom is made up of a lot of words. Your book, um, Sebastian, is just one word. And there's a certain terseness to the quality of your writing. Um, and to your other books, there's another book called Tribe, a book called War. And the book itself is broken down into three sections, each with one word, run, fight, think. What's the what's the attraction of these one word things in terms of freedom itself? Does language liberate you? You're you're obviously one of America's best known writers. Uh, you make your living through the use, sale, and perhaps even sometimes the abuse of language. Is boiling everything down to a single word is that a kind of freedom? Well, you know, I would say that people who want to obscure the truth for whatever reason and whoever they are, whether they're in the media or in government or uh, representing a corporation or, or even a social movement, uh, people who want to obscure the truth use a lot of words, right? And and they, they spin a sort of web of words that obscure the essential truth about something, the essential meaning of something. And, um you know, you just have to watch the prevarications of a, of a politician who's sort of in a, in a corner who was busted with some bad behavior. And they're trying to sort of spin it and excuse it and say that, they're, that what they said was taken out of context or whatever. You just have to watch the web of words to understand that the more language, language you use, the, the more you risk drifting from the actual truth. And so what I find is that in a very, really spare terse prose, there's sort of nowhere to hide. And you are kind of saying what you mean as boldly as possible, and the chips will fall where, they're, where, where they may. And I, I hate uh, obscuring things and camouflaging things uh, when it would be possible to, to actually um, uh, stand in one place and, and state your convictions. Is your mind a kind of aggressive editor? Do you start a book like Freedom with a lot of words and then you sort of pare it down and down and down? Or did you start this book with the word freedom? I started it with the word freedom. Um, and the chapter, the, the section titles, uh, Run, Fight and Think, were, uh, um, you know, I needed to conceive of the book in that way in order to know how to organize it. And I liked the sort of one word titles. Um, my mind is is a brutal editor. I'm an absolute bully with myself, and um, I, I try to be as uh, unsentimental and as rigorous as possible when I'm editing my own prose. And I try to get out every little bit of self in, self indulgence and every little bit of of, of uh, literary fat. Um, it, it's Did all. Did you learn that on the front? Did you, you've done a lot of war reporting? You're one of America's most distinguished war reporters. You didn't. Your first book wasn't about that, but many of your other books and indeed your movies. Ha has the experience of being in combat helped you uh, linguistically? 
I, I wouldn't quite say that. I might say that I'm, I was drawn to combat. And before that, before I was a reporter, I was a, uh, I was a climber for, for uh, tree removal companies. So I worked 50, 60, 80 feet in the air with, on, a, on a rope with a chainsaw. And in both of those environments, uh, mistakes have severe consequences. The, the, the reality is, is drawn rather sharply in both of those environments. And up in a tree, you are completely, completely responsible for your own safety and your own survival. And if you make no mistakes, you'll live. And if you make a mistake, you might die. And it's that simple. And it's like chess. Like you don't lose a chess game randomly. You, you, you lose because you made bad moves. And there's no roll of the dice there. Likewise, tree work. And to some degree in war. And uh, so I think I was drawn to those pursuits, those environments, because of the starkness of the reality, the obvious nature of reality in those environments. And uh, could I draw a line between that and my taste in prose? You know, maybe. Uh, What I would say is that I learned to write by reading. And the the writers that I was drawn to were writers who were (laughs) very terse in their prose and very sort of like a blunt. Who who, who in particular? Oh, I loved um, uh, Ernest Hemingway. I thought it was amazing. Uh, Joan Didion, mm. uh, slightly more ornate in her, in, her, in her sentence structure, but just fantastic, direct, honest, brilliant writer. Um, Peter Matheson, I really loved. Barry Lopez, uh, many, many great writers. Uh, as, as we said earlier, the, the book's broken down into three sections, run, fight, think. You, you, you noted at the beginning that you studied anthropology, I think, um, Wesleyan. Um, is that is that an order in order to fight do we need to run first and in order to think do we need to learn to run and fight well you know very very loosely those are the sort of the the, the three things that people try in that order to maintain their autonomy so one of the interesting things about humans is that we are able smaller humans a smaller person can defeat a larger person in one-on-one combat and a smaller group can defeat a larger group in combat and that is not true even for our closest uh primate relatives chimpanzees you know in that context might really does make right and it's the largest strongest alpha male that that almost invariably wins any any physical confrontation uh in within the group and uh, coalitions of males will fight one another, but the larger coalition almost always wins. So in humans, that's not true. And so the way that human, the way that we maintain our autonomy in the face of, of a more powerful group, which was the, the inquiry of this book, is how is that done? The first thing that people try is to be mobile. At the Apache in the American Southwest, they didn't stand and fight like the Pueblo people, the wealthier Pueblo sedentary Pueblo societies tried to do. And they were defeated by the by the Spanish almost immediately. The Apache were mobile. They ran. They outran, essentially outran their enemies for 300 years. It was a very, very successful strategy. You know, but basically, if you can't outrun your oppressor, you're going to have to outfight him. And that's where this unique human ability to defeat a larger opponent comes into play. The Montenegrins did it against the Ottoman Empire in the 1600s. For that matter, the Taliban did it against the, first the Brits and then the Russians uh, and then the U.S., the most powerful military ever assembled in human history, and the Taliban defeated us, right? They didn't have an air force. They didn't have artillery. Some of them didn't even have boots, and they managed to do it. And there are sort of systemic reasons for why that's possible. And, you know, then, but then finally, how do you maintain your autonomy within your own society? So now you're being oppressed 
by the society that you live in. It's not an enemy. It's the sea that you're swimming in. How do you how do you represent your interests in that context? And essentially, you're in a game of chess against the authorities, uh, and and that requires very very profound strategic thinking. And it's possible to do it. I looked at the labor movement in, in the United States around 100 years ago, and you know, immig basically immigrant labor managed to thwart and ultimately defeat um, the interests of the U.S. government and the National Guard and the corporations. They managed to do it at least a few times. And um, one way they did it was incorporating women into their movement. And women were very, very effective in a couple of ways. First of all, they have lateral networks rather than top-down hierarchical networks that males prefer, which is very important in, in some contexts. But women had lateral networks that are very, very difficult for the authorities to penetrate. Uh, to infiltrate. Uh, and they also put women on the front lines in the street protests. So when they were confronting Nash, armed National Guard troops with fixed bayonets, when they put women on the front lines, the cops didn't know what to do. They were not willing to use uh, uh, um, force, uh, violent force against women. They were, were more reluctant to use force in that context. And as one police uh, chief said in frustration, he said, one cop can handle 10 men but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. And that was the beginning of the sort of tipping point of the success of the, of the protests in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912. Sebastian, I, I'm pleased you brought up the, the male-female thing. Um, I, 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 in terms of reading your book and, and your other work, there's a certain maleness, for better or worse, about uh, your writing, the style, and certainly about freedom. There aren't a lot of women in the book, and you do this trip with with other men. I had Jessica Bruder on the show recently, the author of Nomad Land, and the kind of people living in Nomad Land are women. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who went on your trip had their real lives, their real families, their real homes to go back to, but there is another nomadic quality to contemporary America. This new precariat to people who for better or worse, have to travel around the company's, uh, country. It's not quite as romantic as your experience. I'm not saying it's just women, uh, but it doesn't have that strong kind of male ethos. Is that fair? I, um, well, I'm not quite sure what you're asking. I mean, many Nor people... <laughs> okay, as long as we're on the same page there. Um, no, it's a look, it's a complicated issue. So obviously it winds up being a complicated question. You know, what I would say is that nomadic societies um, in history are freer than sedentary agricultural ones. Agriculture started about 10,000 years ago and they were remarkable for their accumulation of wealth and their loss of loss of freedom for individuals. Um, and by comparison, nomadic societies were quite free and, and, and frankly, more egalitarian. Um, there are many historians who believe that the Great Wall of China was put in place not just to keep the, um, uh, the sort of barbarian hordes, as they were called, keep them out of China, but to keep Chinese, the, the Chinese citizens in China, to keep them from fleeing to nomadic society, which was, was, was often perceived to be more free and more egalitarian. And every nomadic society is made up of exactly a 50% split of men and women. And so... I, you know, I don't think men or women have a, any kind of monopoly of freedom. In the context of modern America, the idea that the women in nomad lands or the men are free is absurd. I mean, they're driving, they're driving vehicles around well, on that, gas. I think that's my point. Let me rephrase the question. They're not free. They're forced to be on 
they're forced to do the kind of to 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 adopt the nomadic lifestyle, which um, you you experience for a few weeks, and then you can right. go back to real life. You know, I haven't seen I haven't seen the film, so I don't know what it's about. You should I would see it. I think you'd find yeah. it. It's it's an interesting compliment to to your book. Your book um, is deeply geographical in a way. It seems as if you're in love with the geography of America, but the geography of America has changed. I had the travel writer Tom Zollner on the the show a few months ago, and he talks about, and I'm quoting here, the American concept of geography has undergone a powerful shift. Places less important than it has ever been to those who can free themselves from it, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave it. You know, America, of course, we all know is divided into two groups, the coastals, the the people who live in between, this new global ruling class, the the old working white working class. What did your your walking in America, and walking is so important, that's one of the Rousseauan elements, I think, to your book and perhaps your thinking. What did the experience of, 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 of this walk, of this long walk, 400 miles, teach you about the geography of America? Or yeah, the new I mean, geography? We were, yeah, we were on the railroad lines off and on for about a year, 400 miles or so. Um, and most of the sort of indigent people we met, um, and there's all kinds of people along the railroad lines, as you can imagine, most of them were men. I mean, most homeless people in America are men, I believe. Uh, I don't I don't know the exact proportion. Um, and um, for whatever reason that is, I, you know, I would say that the railroad lines it interested us because they passed through every kind of American landscape, the wealthy suburbs, the urban areas, the urban ghettos, farmland, wilderness, uh, industrial wasteland. Uh, I'm sorry about the car beeping outside. Speaking of industrial yeah, wasteland. That's New York for you. Yeah. Can't escape the car, Sebastian, can you? Yeah, that's right. So. So we passed through everything. We passed right through the middle of everything, and we met every kind of person. And um, I, you know, I wasn't quite sure I understood the quote about American geography. But you know, what I would say is that you know most well, of the more- point is that that there are two kinds of Americans: people who, for better or worse, are attached to the land, um, and they're the ones who tend to be this new working class. They'll probably vote for Trump, and then people, certainly like myself, I don't want to speak for you, who can escape the land where, you know, we spend our time in airports, um, we're on the internet, um, and geography is less important to us physically, although we might sentimentalize. You know, I think that split has been happening for 10,000 years. I mean, human society was became divided very, very clearly between nomads and sedentary farmers 10,000 years ago. And that basic uh, binary system in human society persists today. I mean, you're arguing that that the nomadic people today, I mean, the airport, the airport dwellers are sort of more affluent. That may be true. Uh, But, you know, during the Dust Bowl in America in the 1930s, um, America was on the move. They were just economically displaced. And the people that were on the move were extremely poor. Uh, So, you know, I think we're looking through a very small um, at at a very small period of time and a sort of narrow slice of the of American society. It's a kind of nostalgic, your book. You you walk across the old railway tracks. I'm a huge railway lover, but of course, railways don't exist anymore. So you, in a way, you're going back to something. You're, you're reinventing America. I, I think, and, and I mean this in, in the best way, it's a very romantic book. 
It's also a very ge generational book. There was one passage that really struck me. Um, I'm going to quote, we walked around 400 miles and most nights we were the only people in the world who knew where we were. That really strikes me in the age of social media. Um, and I, I think your kids are, are, are young. My kids are a bit older. To, to, to explain to 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds that no one knows where they are is unimaginable. I grew up at a time where you could escape the network. We can't yeah. now, can we, Sebastian? I mean, I did. I have a flip phone. I'm not on that stuff. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. Uh, and we're raising our daughters, you know, without screens. Um, I think it's toxic to the human psyche, the human soul, and to society. But, you know, I, just to back up for a moment, the, the, the railroads do very much still exist. I mean, the, the main thing we had to do was stay out of the way of the trains because right. they, were, they were coming through every 28 well, yeah, days. Yeah, let, me, let, me, let me explain what I mean. Is Most people don't travel by railroad. Most people travel by car or by plane. Right. Um, so the railroad network is perhaps more important for freight than it is for yeah. passengers. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely true. Yes. Do you mourn that? Do you think it's sad that we've lost our railroads as a way of travel? Well, um, you know, I'm concerned about the environment. And I think if we drove less and took mass transportation more, it would be good for the environment. And, you know, that includes airplane travel, which I've done plenty of, you know. So I think it would be a good move. My dad grew up in Europe where um, trains dominated. That's how everyone got places. And I, I think that's something very lovely about that. And um, for us, the passenger trains were, you know, a bit of a threat and a danger because they went so fast, right? I mean, the freight trains can only go 60 miles an hour and they make a lot of noise coming your way and you can get out of their way. You know, the, the passenger trains came through at 120. And boy, you really had to stay on your toes if you're on the lines. Uh, you, you know, when you look you up, you describe yourself or you are described as both uh, a writer, everyone knows you, of course, for the the, the perfect storm. Uh, but you're also well known as a filmmaker. Your uh, your your non uh, your documentary movie Restrepo, I think, was shortlisted for an Academy Award, maybe even won one. Um, also, your last movie, uh, your documentary, The Last Patrol, I think, is in some ways based on this book. Um, there's a strong cinematic quality as well to, to the writing in, in Freedom. How do you divide that? How do, you, how do you decide when to write a book and when to make a movie? Oh, yeah. Thank you for the question uh, and for the compliment. I, I, I believe that um, good writing, as at least in the way that I try to practice it, um, involves a lot of uh, visuals. Uh, we're visual creatures. And if you can communicate visually, you're doing pretty well in, 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 as a writer. Um, you know, I don't, I mean, I wrote a book called War about a platoon in combat for a year in eastern Afghanistan, and I also carried a video camera and shot a lot of video along with my colleague, Tim Hetherington. Uh, and uh, Who's no longer alive. Yes, who, lo who lost his life in 2011 in, Mis in, the, in Misrata, Libya. Um, uh, and we, together, we made a film called Restrepo, and they, they you know, the two complemented each other. You know, one's a visual medium, and when you're in the cinema and watching Restrepo and something goes bang really loudly, you jump in your seat because your amygdala doesn't know that you're not in a war zone. You know, the, the, the primitive reactive part of your brain thinks you're there, right? No one reading a book is going to jump in their seat because a firefight kicks off. And so it's a different experience, equally important, 
but it's more it's more um, cognitive forebrained and 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 you're 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 ruminating on things more and and so I, and it's less experiential. So I, you know I think they go together very well. That when I did the when I did the last patrol, which was a video doc was a documentary about this railroad this track of the railroad lines. You know, I had no idea that many years in the future I would write a book called Freedom and that I would refer, you know, in places in, in the book, I would refer to that trip. I had no idea, but I kept my notebooks during the trip because that's what I do. I'm a writer and and I dug them up when I wrote Freedom and I was like, wow, this is pretty cool. This is in some ways, the you know, physically anyway, the freest I've ever been from sort of societal control. Why don't I look into that trip and see what it felt like through the prism of freedom? Um the book is called Freedom, and of course, it's a deeply American book. You're a very American writer. Uh, you've done a lot of work in Afghanistan. I've had some shows about Afghanistan. And of course, the story of Afghanistan is pretty tragic on many fronts, particularly today, given the American uh, withdrawal. You're also uh, involved, Sebastian, in um, Vets Town Halls. You're a man who's really... You've worked with troops, you've lived with troops, you, in a sense, you've been a troop. What, what is your Vets Town Hall initiative and why is it important? Oh, well, thank you. in the context of, you know, we, we, we or Americans send their people off to war to supposedly to defend or, or create freedom in countries like Afghanistan. And then they come back and they are the least free, these ex-troops. Yeah, I mean, people come back from combat. And again, not all troops, not all soldiers experience combat. In fact, it's a minority that do. But they come back often quite traumatized. And one of the things they have to sort of give up is the deep connection and loyalty that they experienced in their platoon. Um, and uh, their, their difficulty seems to be reorienting their allegiance to the larger group of the nation, right? They go from the platoon and then don't have a replacement group when they get back. And the nation as a whole seems sort of out of reach for them. And so I thought that w what we could do in this country, in the United States, is to replicate some of the Native American ceremonies that were used effectively to bring warriors back from combat. And what they would do is they would allow the warriors a time to dance and sing and retell of their exploits on the warpath, as it were. And, and um, there's an enormously cathartic uh, and socially binding uh, um, result from that process. And so I thought we could do the same thing with veterans um, in, in our town halls on Veterans Day. And so vet, vet Town Hall, Veterans Town Hall is, is, is a way of organizing events that cost almost nothing. You take over the town hall of your town and veterans can stand up and talk for 10 minutes about what it felt like to serve their country in war. And you're going to get a lot of complicated feelings, grief, anger, rage, uh, pride, everything. And it allows the community to experience that and, and, and help carry the burden or the pride or the anger of whatever it may be of, of going to war. This book, uh, Freedom by Sebastian uh, Junger, is, is, is a wonderful read. It's poetic. It's very honest. It's brutal in its own way. It's sad. And, and I guess in some ways it's inspiring. Uh, people in, who, who will be going to the Miami Book Fair are lucky enough that Sebastian's going to be... You're, you're going to Miami, right, uh, Sebastian, to talk about the book? 
I am going there physically in person. Yes, I, I can't wait. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's going to be amazing. Uh, people need to go to Miami. To uh, I wish I was going. Uh, it's one thing to talk to him on uh, on the internet. It's quite another to see him in person. Uh, and uh, I want to thank the guys at the Miami Book Fair for setting this up. It's a wonderful event. They have some of the, the leading writers, not just in America, in the world. It's, it's, it's coming next month. So it's essential. Uh, I think you can probably watch online, but I would encourage people to show up. Uh, this new book, uh, Freedom by Sebastian Junger, is, is a central reading. Uh, as always, I'm sure it's a bestseller. Sebastian, you're talking to me from your home in uh, New York City. In addition um, to Freedom, what else should people be reading these days? What are you reading that's keeping you uh, thinking and running and fighting? <laughs> um, well, I tell you what, uh, the completely honest answer is not much. I have two young children. Um, and, uh, we all, we all go to bed, to bed around nine o'clock at night. And so my reading time is, um, extremely limited and I wish I had a better answer for you, but at this point in my life, I'm not reading much, but you know what I would Maybe say. Maybe that's freedom, Sebastian, not reading anymore. <laughs> yeah. You're never completely free. You're trading one form of freedom for another and you're doing that your whole life. And thank God, because we are, are you listening to anything? Are you watching anything? What are you watching with your kids? I hope you're not just watching kids shows. Well, we don't have a television. We don't All watch right. anything. So how are you entertaining them? Uh, we play music. We play music. We tell stories. We walk around New York City. Uh, I get down on the floor and play with them. Uh, you know, the ancient human way. Well, I hope you'll get down on the floor and play with some of the people in Miami. Sebastian Younger, real honor, real fun. Thank you so much again. Congratulations on this wonderful new book, Freedom. And I hope I'll talk to you again in the not too distant future. Keep well. Thank you. Thank you very much.